Hello, friends. Welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. This episode marks the second anniversary of Backstory. Thank you, everyone, for supporting me over the last two years. I'm really proud of this podcast, and I'm excited to keep working and keep discovering and to keep sharing all of that with you. So to celebrate, I'm bringing you a double episode with one of the brightest spirits in live-action roleplay, Jian Shim. Jian works for a company called Trackers Bay, a youth camp in the San Francisco Bay Area that focuses on building wilderness survival skills and familiarity with the land. Her program does this specifically through LARP. So we talk about LARPing with kids and hero stories and being present even in times of terrible uncertainty and fear. Like I said, this is like a double episode, so saddle up. It's extremely good. Yeah, the medium of LARPing in particular in game design, because I think about it a lot, like what it is that draws people to LARPing over like tabletop role playing or board games. I'm not a board game person. I find that for me, board games are like, in many ways, my social nightmare. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you're saying yes, because like, it's really... (laughs) Actually, I feel like I say that and people are like, oh, okay, that's too bad. (laughs) Um, I guess I know a lot of people who just really love board games, but I hate them a little bit. It takes me, and it's not the board game's fault. It's not the designer's fault. They're beautiful pieces of work, but I need like five playthroughs to understand all of the intricate rules. Because like, let's be real, none of our friends, none of my friends, I should say, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but none of my friends are into like, sets or like banana (laughs) crabs they want to play like arkham asylum with a six hour playthrough average and like eight people at the table and so many cards and tokens and i just don't know what the fuck is going on and until i yeah yeah sorry you were gonna say no i shouldn't you i i'm 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 so bad with like interrupting people on my own show but like uh it's like Either it's really complex and I'm not going to understand it, or it's really simple and they're like, oh, and and then you figure it out because it's simple and you're like, okay, well, I figured it out and it's just a game. So now I understand the game and now it doesn't do anything anymore. And like, and then there's, (laughs) oh, it's actually pretty simple. You'll pick it up right away. Yeah, it's super simple. And then I definitely don't. Probably just because I'm not yeah. paying attention. And then I feel dumb. Yes, yeah. exactly. Oh my God. <laughs> All yes. these people who know my capacity are like, oh yeah, you'll get it. Five hours later, <laughs> they're looking at me with just this resigned sadness in their eyes. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm sorry that I will never understand Settlers of Catan. Yeah. But I am i won't. I will. I never will. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And even with like tabletop RPGs, like I came into it playing not like D&D, but I think my first tabletop game experience was Apocalypse World. And that's really informed what I seek out when I want to play like a at table with friends sitting around it role playing game. Like it's why Monster Hearts is one of my favorite systems. Um, I still love the Apocalypse World engine games. But if there's any math beyond like very simple on the fly arithmetic, I'm out. I don't (laughs) want it. 
like it's it just halts the the flow for me and it's not about like i want to be immersed like i'm not fucking immersed i'm sitting at a table with my friends with like snacks and <laughs> you know our cats like wandering through but it is it is like jarring um and i think it's just because i skipped that tier and if it were something that i got used to in that social element then it would be different but now when i play dnd i just get really fucking bored uh, to be totally honest and it like like really kind of shunts me to this little margin of like what kind of games I want to play or or that that I can organize that people are willing to play but with LARPing it's even weirder because like you get those same divisions in something that is so much more ephemeral like with a like a role-playing game you can voice record it or you can write down what happened and I, I've noticed a lot of the DMs and GMs that I play with like to write like little emails or stories about what happened so that people can remember for next time because who knows when you're going to be able to sit down again. But it ends up being like this really beautiful documentation and and record of what's happening. It's a thread that carries you through. But with LARPing, when game is called, like that's it, you're done. And no one remembers everything that happened. No one. Facilitator, GM, any player. It's impossible. There's... There's no one yeah, story. There's no way, there's no like Truman Show camera system watching everybody. So even if you do have impeccable recall, you're still going to miss out on a huge portion of what's happening, even in a parlor LARP, because other people are having other conversations. There's like dynamics that you're missing as you either play your role or facilitate the game as a whole. There's always going to be something that's lost to you, but is like the cornerstone of someone else's experience. And that's like really fascinating to me because in that sense, LARPing is kind of just like moving through the world out of game. Like everyone has their own subjective reality. The shit you said to the barista on your way to work in the morning for you is like a crystal clear memory that, you know, you retain. And for someone else, it's it's literally like it didn't happen, right? And that ephemeral, it's like an anchor for you, but so ephemeral for everyone outside of you. And when I think about it, I'm like, why does anyone like this? <laughs> why do I like this? Why, why is this something that people seek out to the point where they spend like hundreds of dollars to participate in environments and sets that are created this way? But we do. And, and it's this idea, I think, that like make-believe is still so important to people, the ability to just let go and be able to decide that that's who you're going to be is so primal in a way and I still don't quite have my finger on why but I see it more and more with different demographics of players um you know with my line of work I I work with a lot of people who look at the LARP portion at like my day job and are just like what the fuck even is that (laughs) (laughs) like what are you guys doing Um, especially because during the year, we don't really have a lot of the LARP programming. We have a monthly apprenticeship, which is this mentorship program, um, where kids will like come out, um, and we will teach them the same like traditional land skills that they would get from just a straight up, what's called like a ranger's apprenticeship or a wilder's apprenticeship. Um, but in the artisan's apprenticeship, we also incorporate like a couple to a few hours of LARPing over this weekend every time. And so they get to play like a campaign LARP in some sense. Their characters are ongoing. Um, 
And every now and then, like over coffee early the next morning when we're all like getting ready to clean up, one of my friends at work will just be like, why do you need, like, why can't you just build that fire? Why do you need to pretend to be a bunch of travelers on this quest to like get that fire going? And I think about that a lot, why it is that some people, it's not that they wouldn't have fun just learning how to build the fire, but it's like so much deeper for them when they're pretending and I still don't know why that's rewarding. And like one thing that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about recently is how to make that desire accessible for people who have a lot of self-consciousness around it or a lot of reluctance around it. Because I actually think that everyone likes that shit on some level. They just have different avenues to get there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or they don't think that they could do it or there's some kind of self-consciousness or something. Yeah. Some kind of block. Cause it's not like there are kids who don't do it. Like it's, it's funny to me that the adults are so much more self-conscious than the children. Because to me, like when you're a kid, you're so much more vulnerable to the world. And I like, from my memories as a kid, I was keenly aware of like my peers watching me and like adults watching me and trying to navigate that at the same time, I wanted to seek out my own experiences. It's part of why like spending a lot of time alone in the woods was what enabled me to, to create these innate passions for what I end up doing now, even though it's not something that I sought out professionally. Like I kind of fell into this job by accident, like to be totally real. <laughs> but now, you know, we're kind of looking at expanding into adult programming and thinking about the kind of people that we want to sign up for our programming. And the answer is like everybody and anybody to an extent, but realistically the people who are going to be signing up are people who are either already interested in land skills or already interested in LARPing. And I don't know why there isn't that much overlap between the two, because actually there's so much organic parallelism going on. The ephemerality of LARPing is echoed a lot in the ephemerality of like learning to build a fire for the first time. It's not like you can take that home with you. When you build a shelter, most of the places we go, you also have to fade it after learning how to, to fade and counter track is a big part of our curriculum. Things are, are gone very quickly. But in the same way, like people hold on to those memories and they end up turning into stories and the stories serve as inspiration for the next set of people. It's, it's really fascinating to see like essentially this little oral tradition being created through our programming in like every different direction. Like the place I see this a lot actually is with our what's called our mariners programming which is all it's mostly fishing um, it's like waterways learning to read the coastline and like freshwater ecosystems so that you can go fishing and catch fish but these kids they're hilarious they have first of all they created like a little Instagram account for their fishing adventures totally independently of anything they're doing trackers. it's so cute it's like the cutest fucking thing I've ever seen but yeah so like there's so much of this incredibly like socially like tightly knit community within like the fishing camp kids. But what I've noticed is they tell stories about fish they've caught to the next set of kids coming in constantly. And it's a way of like inspiring them and encouraging them when they feel down. But also it's just like, it's not entirely altruistic. It's their needs too. Like it is the, the selfish desire that everyone has to like tell their story and have it received really well. And I'm just fascinated by how sometimes I feel like I really struggle to to keep that like bright and passionate and going with like the storytelling department of my job. But the fishing campers are just like on it. They have no 
difficulty with that whatsoever. And I wonder if it's because they're so single-minded, like their goal is catch fish. Right. But but then there's this narrativization that just kind of happens that they that they almost can't resist. Yeah. And you hear it from this storytelling exists with everyone at work, like all the kids, all the all the staffers have stories of things that happen to them in the field. And um, when I hear them telling these stories, it reminds me of something that uh, I can't remember who said it. It might have been the company founder, but someone basically was like making fun of the LARPers because like, let's be real, that's easy to do. And saying like, why would anyone want to go like put on a cloak and pretend to be an elf in the woods? And the... You know, it does look kind of odd from the outside. Yeah, we don't know either. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And whoever they were talking to at Trackers was like, like, you can say that. And like, if that'll help you sleep better at night, by all means, go for it. But the difference between like the artisans, the LARPers and everyone else is they're admitting to LARPing. Everyone else is pretending they're not. But really, (laughs) they're all LARPing in the woods. Right. Yeah. Because you're like, because you could just turn around and go home to your bed. Yeah, totally. In your house, your electric heating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You don't actually need that fire to survive. Even when it's raining and cold out, you can just wait it out and go home. Like that's, that's like the metagaming of our programming, right? You can acknowledge that this is all kind of fake in that sense and go home. But no one does. No one ever does. Even the kids who are like, I hate this. I want to leave. They stick it out always. And I'm I'm like really, really interested in why that is. And I think a lot of it is the is the land connection that that's at the heart of the games that I design for trackers, but also in many ways, even the games that I've been designing independently all have land connection kind of at their core and at their heart. I wanna ask you about that land connection that is so, so woven into the work that you do, because when it comes to survival skills, I I wonder how do you, in making games that are about like embodying something and telling this story or being a part of a story, how do you make something about survival without making it this kind of like man versus nature <laughs> triumph over forces without like, a, you know, like a gross story like that? So... There is very little of that narrative in any of the games that I've written. And I'm just trying to take a few seconds to think about why it doesn't come up with the kid, like on the kid's end, you know? That's such a good question. So I think part of the answer is that at the heart of the games that I write and the games that I want to write, the stories that I want people to be able to tell and share and that I want to facilitate, there's a really deep love for the community and the land and how the two integrate with each other. And if there is that integration, it hopefully doesn't leave room for that narrative of dominance over the land, the narrative of using up the land for your own means, which isn't to say tending the land is out of out of bounds. We talk a lot about land tending, about stewardship. There's a lot of values of stewardship that I try to teach in my work both at and outside of trackers. And what that means can be different to a lot of people. But for me, a lot of it is my personal aim is to have people walk away from these games understanding that the skills that I teach through them, whether it's herbalism and plant knowledge or fire making, you know, stewardship and tending of the land, tracking and learning to recognize animal sign, all of these skills 
are ancestral. They're a part of literally every single person's birthright. It doesn't matter where you come from. Everyone did this at some point in their ancestral communities. And they did it through understanding the land that they live in and the land around them. It doesn't mean that communities weren't wasteful. There's a lot of that kind of, you know, noble savage narratives around indigenous peoples, you know, never killing an animal unless, no, people were always people, right? And there were communities that did hunt certain species to extinction or what have you. But that was an action that they took that immediately had natural consequences. And then there are records of those communities needing to adapt to those consequences. So there's always that learning and and those mistakes, while perhaps regrettable in like a wide conservationist point of view looking back, are still part of something that happened. And when people understand that the land is a story that has been told way before any human community really took root and will continue to be told when people are extinct and just like a ghost of what used to be on this planet, then I think that there's a sense of like, we're just moving through this land. This land isn't for us to take over. This land isn't ours, really. It is going to be here so much longer than I will be. And it already has been here for a long time. There's this incredible book that I just started reading on a friend's recommendation called The Hidden Life of Trees. It's on the New York Times like bestseller list. And Oh my gosh. Yes, yes. Please, please, please tell my listeners what that, start, what that book is about. Have you read it? I've not actually read it. I really want to. Oh, it's so good, Alex. <laughs> I'm three chapters in and it's this German naturalist talking about trees and like old growth forest ecosystems. And there was a point in like the second or beginning of the third chapter where I actually started welling up. I was so like emotionally moved. <laughs> but basically, The Hidden Life of Trees is about old growth forests and how trees have like a sentience and an intelligence and a way of adapting to their environments that's really complex and much deeper than people realize a lot when they move through a park or a woodland. And even though it's written by a naturalist, a lot of it is, I wouldn't say dry, but definitely like scientifically phrased and scientifically minded. There is a sense of raw animism in a lot of what he's talking about. This thing about like how in the introduction to the book, um, I'm going to mangle his name, Peter Wolben, I want to say, is like walking through this maybe 500, 600 year old beach forest. And he sees these stones on the ground and he notices moss growing on them. And tries to pick them up to see what kind of moss and then realizes they're actually the remnants of this gigantic stump that was growing all around him. Mm -hmm. And when he touches them, they feel cool, which is weird because that would imply moisture content and there's no way it's alive. But he takes out his pocket knife and he scratches at it and it's green. The stump is still alive. And he realized that all the other beaches in the forest are actually still pumping nutrients into the root system of that stump. And that trees of the same species do this. They help each other stay alive in old growth forests. It's part of why if you look up, sometimes you'll see that the outermost branches don't grow over each other. They don't overlap in a forest canopy so that all of those trees, like all of them, can have the same light and moisture and access to those resources within the same species. There's still competition across species. But there's like, when I read that part of the book, my first thought, and this is like a little bit of 
human projection onto the natural world. But my literally my first thought was, oh, friends helping their friends. <laughs> I want my community to be like this. <laughs> yeah. And like the fact that that sense of human connection to the land, it speaks a little bit to human ego. But I hope I hope that it's also rooted in that animism, right? This idea that like people are animals on the earth the way that all animals are. We have a lot of really unique capacity for storytelling, for technology, for creating things, but that doesn't make us in any way superior necessarily. And this is a a rambling answer to, to what should be a simple question. But what I'm hoping is that people touch base with that connection, that animism as well when they play my games, that they get that sense of being like one part of this huge tapestry can I tell you a story about Maya? Yeah. You know Maya, right? Maya Ziv. I don't know. I love actually. her. She's such a good friend of mine. Um, for listeners, she's also like a game designer and in- involved with Event Horizon as I think the social media director. But I met her through a game that I wrote, a LARP that I wrote, where she played this character that was like very embittered and had lost a lot of sense of the land. And after the game ended, she came up to me and I, I was like pretty ragged. That was actually my first time writing and, and running a LARP for kids over the age of like 14. And the, the work culture there was very different than the work culture that I came from. So I was like exhausted. And so Maya comes up to me and she goes, Gian, Gian, I just want to talk to you before I leave. And I was like, awesome. What do you want to say? She was like, I hate hiking. Cool. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Cool. She's like, no, no, no. You don't understand. I hate hiking. I kind of hate the outdoors. Like I've never really understood it. But then I was playing your game last night and I could hear the wind moving. Like I could literally hear every direction it was going and where it had come from and where it was now and where it was going to go. And I died in game. My character died. And the moment I died, I looked up into the night sky and a star streaked right across me and like, faded on the horizon line and I realized we're all connected this is all connected and I know right (laughs) and then after this like like really intense story that she's like telling me over the course of like two minutes and I'm just like like just trying not to weep basically she goes so how do I go hiking (laughs) and like that's what I want you know (laughs) I want I don't want like being out in the land to be intimidating because it feels intimidating to most people who live in modernity, right? And when I say modernity, I'm talking about like urban environments, like the ones that you and I live in and the ones that I think probably a lot of your listeners live in. Probably, yeah. Podcast listeners. Yeah, 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 totally. Like when you live in a city or even like a big town that doesn't intrinsically have easy access outside of private ownership of a car to a park. And when I say a park, not like a manicured city park, but like a big rambling like wooded park or like, in Northern California, we're blessed with like three or four very distinct biomes. So we can go to a lush redwood forest or a really desert-like chaparral scrub foothill area or an oak savanna all within a couple hours of each other. And not everyone has access to that biodiversity, but everyone has access to some land. But what I've noticed, what I noticed at Metatopia talking to people when I explained what I do because even at a, at a convention for indie game designers, what I do was really weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> people, like, as soon as I ended, like, this is what I do. I teach ancestral land skills through LARPing. 
people's responses after being like, what the fuck does that mean? Were one of two directions. Either it was immediately sharing like a childhood story about being in the land and loving it. Or it was a story about how much they wish they could go outdoors, but it's like really intimidating and scary and like they don't really know where to start. And then one of those things always bled into the other. And like that actually, like I went to this convention because I was like really generously and graciously sponsored by Sean Nittner at Big Bad Con to go. But when he sponsored me, it was a little, I'm not going to lie, it was a little baffling because I was like, oh, you know, I like, I get into this mindset over the year where it's like LARPing is like just part of the job. It's not necessarily one of my passions. Like I don't really consider myself a game designer. And then I went to this convention. I was like, oh, this is important maybe because all of these people here could go out in the land. It doesn't have to be the wooded old growth forest. They can go out in their backyard. They can go to their city park. They can go out there once a week for six months and spend 20 minutes in the same spot in that park and watch the wildlife and plant life around them change over the course of that year. That is really moving and beautiful too. Well, to, to bring it back to LARP, because I feel like earlier we were talking about like, what is the connection? Like, why would you LARP to to have a different relationship to the land or to learn about the land? And just in the way that you've been talking about it, this sort of fear that people have, I think some of it is caused by material circumstances, right? Just like unfamiliarity and, you, you know, they're just not used to having like exposure to it. But also think again about that man versus nature set of stories or like archetypal story that we get exposed to. If that is your understanding of how people relate to the land is through that kind of story, then of course it's going to be intimidating because you're going to wonder like, well, can I handle it? And am I strong enough? And so I wonder if like skills are one thing, but it sounds like also you're trying to help people craft a different story about how they relate to natural phenomena. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. Because you know, even the term land connection, it's one that I throw around a lot and people in this industry and outdoor education throw around a lot. And it doesn't necessarily say that. It sounds big and it sounds foundational and therefore it sounds kind of intimidating. Like the buy-in is really huge. But when you see kids experiencing land connection or nature connection, often it's like in someone's yard trying to catch a grasshopper. Like that's like, like yeah. When, yeah, when people think back to their own childhood memories, it's not like I, at the, at the tender age of nine, hiked <laughs> up and summited this mountain and then looked at the landscape <laughs> below me. Like, no, it's like yeah. I was at a friend's house and there was this little snake and I spent two hours trying to catch this goddamn snake. And then when I finally got my hands around it, it was cold. And that was so weird. It's little things like that. That's so true to what I want to do. And at this convention, which, you know, was in a hotel, there mm -hmm. were no windows <laughs> in any yeah. of the rooms. Um, one of the days, I think it was like really shitty weather. Oh, and then at Big Bad Con, one of the days there was still smoke from the wildfire. So literally no one could really go outside. At all of the games, there were aspects of the natural world. I brought in herbs. I brought in fur and skulls as not just like set elements, but props that were mechanics in the game. I remember I brought in charcoal to teach the fundamental principles of camouflage. And people like ground up the charcoal and made it a paste with it and put it on their faces cool. in a convention room, right? Hell yeah. Yeah, because yeah, this is like, you don't have to 
be outside to understand what's beautiful about it as that first step. And I recognized in designing these games that trying to take them to a park nearby wasn't necessarily going to work, not just on a logistical level with the time constraints, but because that's not what people signed up for these conventions for. They signed up basically to be in a hotel room or a convention room and conference room and like play a game there. And so there's a certain accommodation that has to be made for the level that people are at. But once I understood that, they were people were so in it, like across the board, the most positive feedback I got for these games were they were so tactile. You know, I crushed the herbs and I could smell them. And and they made me want to learn more. And that's all I ask for. You know, I want to stoke that curiosity to to make people less afraid of the fact that there is a learning curve. Because there is, you know, as in everything. But if people can sit down and learn how to play fucking Arkham Asylum and spend eight hours of <laughs> finite time that they are not going to get back <laughs> to play that goddamn game, like they can, you know, I know that everyone has that that curiosity and that passion for some aspect of the outdoors and for some aspect of the land in them too. And they would be happy to spend a fraction of that time learning it. They just need someone to guide them to that because there is something about playing a board game that to me is incredibly intimidating, but to the majority of gamers is just part of the part of the deal. Right. But then, you know, you flip it around and the idea of like taking the first steps learning about herbalism is really scary. And I can understand that there can be some pretty serious mistakes that can be made, but really it doesn't have to be intimidating. Yeah. To, and to use that as an example, uh, on my Twitter, which is where I do a lot, I'm trying to like build Twitter, especially as like a social engagement, because I've started to recognize like the reach that you can have there in terms of breadth of experience and who you talk to. I held like one of those little polls where you're like, what things should I do? And, and anonymous people can vote on it. Um, and a lot of people who have a lot further reach than I do were very kind and like retweeted it. And so I got about 100 responses to the question of what traditional land skill would you be most interested to learn through a LARP? And like, I had stealth and camo and projectiles and weapons on there. And I was like, those are going to win hands down. But no, they were dead last. The The thing that won was herbalism and, and plant ID. And I was so fascinated by why that was the was the huge margin majority winner. And I think it's because with herbalism, there is something that people recognize. It's helpful to have a person in person mentoring them. And that is something that LARP can provide that no tabletop RPG and no board game can really provide people is just through by virtue of LARPing, you are there with people in person. And because of that, you have someone who can literally almost literally hold your hand and teach you like, this is a plant that you that you want for this particular use, like here are the ways of recognizing it. Here's what it looks like through the year and this season, it might look like this. And even if people would be able to access that knowledge just by reading about it, it doesn't feel like there's always uncertainty. Like, what if I read the wrong website or this book is better or something? But with, and it's not like that. It's not like people are infallible, but like I've done herbalism and made mistakes. And I can tell people in person, like, these are the mistakes that I've made. You don't get those stories as much when you're autodidactic. Yes. You know? Yeah, totally. There are definitely some things that, are much, much better learned like in person. Like if you try to learn a sport, like you should really have someone who is like good at tennis if you want to learn tennis and who can like actually be like, oh no, like put your wrist like this. Like Yeah. And like 
you know, safety, safety guidelines aside, a lot of it is also because I think at their heart, a lot of people in modern urban life are deeply lonely. Yes. (laughs) Yep. I know that sounds harsh. And obviously, I'm not, you know, speaking for everybody. But I think there is that I can't remember who coined there is like that one sociologist who coined the term like alienation to talk about like urban life and urban living. But it's so I see it so present in every generation of people that I interact with, even kids that I work with who live in the cities and who have, you know, what we think of as fairly typical lifestyles, either they're in school in a city or they're working in a city or what have you. And there's always this like really deep well of loneliness and isolation that people carry around with them. I think it's part of why conventions are so high tension in many ways, because people are like, you're here and I'm here too. We're here for the same reason. And that connection is so much a part of the MO that people are just like doing that. They're like connecting and connecting and connecting. And then after three days of it, they're fucking exhausted because they don't want to lose any opportunity for it. And so they don't take space for themselves. And that's when you get things like con burnout and like bleeds over into every engagement that they have with any aspect of their life. And so, of course, people want peer mentorship and, and one-on-one like human mentorship. And of course, LARPing has been taking a deeper foothold in our communities because people want community. They want to be able to spend time in person with other people. And the opportunities for that are becoming in some ways more and more artificial. I think that's not necessarily actually true, but that's the fear that people carry around with them. What if... I'm missing out. What if I blink and now, you know, five, 10, 15 years have gone by and all my friends don't live in the same city as I do? What if, you know, there are just so many different ways that that can manifest. And of all the things to learn where you have that most mentorship and the most kinship with someone, it made sense to me looking at the survey that herbalism hit the top because even if it's not explicit, that kind of connection is really present in that skill in a way that I think people resonated with a lot. Well, and and that particular skill is about healing. Yeah, at, you know, at its best, absolutely. Healing yourself, healing the people you care about, making people feel better. Yeah, I mean, healing takes lots of different forms, not just necessarily identifying an illness and and removing it, but all kinds of healing. Absolutely. You know, like, I, I love my survival trips, as, as I call them, like, going out on the land with minimal supplies and all that stuff. But really the the thing that I do the most that connects most to my work is like making food. <laughs> I I really love cooking and feeding people because that's a way that you can contribute to your community immediately that that nourishes people. And that's something that I I personally really love. There's lots of ways to to connect to people using skills that you learn. Um, and I think that within LARPing Man, what's a politic way to say this? I don't know if there is a politic way to Go say this. Go for it. I think that there's <laughs> a certain um, cultural acceptance, certainly, and also also cultural presence of a spectrum of social awkwardness. Yeah. In mm-hmm. yeah, in the gaming community, and I think that's real. Mm-hmm. And there is also a self consciousness that comes with it. 
you know, right? Like on the one hand, people are reveling in the fact that they're finally in this community of people where they don't need to necessarily apologize for the way that they are, or like there will be like mechanisms to communicate with people smoothly. But then at the same time, they're like, oh, but we're all weirdos too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Like once I leave this one little bubble, what happens to me? (laughs) And, and I think, when that social self-consciousness sets in, it's really hard to learn. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You can't learn anything when you're afraid, whether you're afraid of it going wrong or of failing or of being judged by others. It's very hard to learn under fear. Yeah. And when you have that social fear, I think that you know the values of compassion and, and community, which people really crave in the isolation of modern culture, it's hard to to be open to that. And so any mechanism that I can employ to sort of soften that or take it away or have people understand that like at least for the for the stretch of the game we're all in that one community together like that has to happen in order for people to open themselves up to the vulnerability of learning skills that they're going to fail at initially that's any learning yeah of course you need to fail in order to learn right yeah that failure is the cornerstone of learning resilience and self-reliance and like right now a lot of people in North America are living in a time of like real uncertainty and resilience and self-reliance are something that people crave deeply. I noticed a lot more interest in specific aspects of the skills that I teach. Like how do I grow my own food? Are, Are there any herbal forms of birth control is a scary question that I've been getting a lot more. And like, I want to teach those skills, maybe not through LARPing, that that particular one, but like as a general blanket statement, I do want to teach like self-reliance and, and more knowledge of the land around them to help people feel self-reliant. And there is still so much of a hurdle in the gaming community, in the LARP community of that self-consciousness, which is so funny to me because one thing I really admire about LARPers is they're not necessarily, you know, that, that do I look weird in this costume, in this public place? Not really an issue when they're LARPing, but then we start to try to make a shelter or fire and suddenly people worry about like, do I look weird? Am I messing up? Is this wrong? And like the answer to all those questions could be yes. And it still doesn't matter because like, you're still here. You're still learning. That's what matters. I don't really know what niche I'm in right now, but it feels like like a perfect overlap of all of the things that I feel very passionate about in my life right now. And I think it's also an interesting window into the zeitgeist of living in the current administration, into the anxiety that everyone is kind of resonating with on a low level right now. When I was at Metatopia, I, there was a panel on how to market your game. And I took it because you know, I essentially went here for work, don't know a whole lot about marketing. And the panelists, I think it was um, Steve, oh, I can't remember his last name. I'm so bad with names. Uh, Jason Peters? Uh, Pete. And Pete. Oh, Pete. Okay. I knew I was going to mingle his name. There was an R before an E and I was like, no, I'm going <laughs> to fuck that up. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and Beth <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so those... Uh, Three lovely human beings um, held this marketing panel. And at the end, like people of the various groups that we broke into were supposed to give a pitch. And my pitch was that, you know, at the heart of all my games, whether through trackers or independently written, 
is a love for the land and a connection to the land and all the ancestral skills that everyone has access to in some way. But, you know, that connection to the land, the connections to the root, the connection to yourself that, that I want to teach, it feels far away. And so ideally, through these LARPs that I write and through the games that I want to develop, to reconnect with that, what I'm doing is I'm building the gateway, but every player, it's up to them to walk through it themselves. And I want to be able to guide them through it. But ultimately, the steps that they take are their own. So that more, that's not exactly what I said, but that was the pitch. Um, and Jason was like, that was great. And then he found me in the lobby afterwards and was like, you were, that was so great. And I was like really flattered, but I didn't, <laughs> this happens a lot. Like he was praising me and I didn't understand why. And so it was like making me more anxious. <laughs> and after a while, I interrupted him and I was like, I appreciate this so much. Can you tell me why that was a good pitch? Because I don't understand. And he was like, I mean, obviously, like those land skills are really cool. There's uh, a certain like, like that animism you're keying into is is definitely very appealing to a, a lot of gamers. But also, right, in times of uncertainty, people want to feel like they can rely on themselves. And people want to feel like they have communities they can rely on as well. And that ultimately is what you are selling through these game designs. And I had this moment where I was like, well, I didn't even know I was doing that, but I feel great (laughs) about myself right now. And then I was reflecting on that and I was like, oh, people want that because they're scared. Yeah. Yeah. People are just scared to death. Yeah. Everyone is scared right now. And the kids that we teach are scared. I mean, every kid, I think on some level holds a healthy fear of the fact that they are they are children in an adult world it's a scary time yeah it's a scary time in everyone's life you're tiny anything could happen you don't you have you know subpar motor skills compared to adults (laughs) like you know you have to you have to adapt (laughs) and um you know and adapt they do kids are amazingly resilient and adaptable but right now also most of the adults around them are just like resonating with anxiety and they don't know why kids pick up on that too and I've noticed that shift over the over the three years I've been doing this work as kids you know they're so anxious right now and I want the the LARPs that I that I design to hit this delicate balance of providing people with the idea that they can be self-reliant they just need to know what path to go down and who to ask for guidance and that can be themselves as well right but also like comfort and how how do people exist on a steep learning curve and know that they're on that curve, but feel comforted at the same time? And that's really what I want to be able to provide to people is a little bit of a reprieve from this anxiety and this fear that seems like just in the air right now. Well, how how do you know when you're doing that? What does that look like when, when you're like, yes, hitting it, nailing it? With kids, because that's the, the demographic I work with the most, I see it the most when they hit that sweet spot of focus when literally nothing exists except for them and whoever they're working with and the project they're working on and that can include the adventure that they're having in character and also it can include like the fire that they're trying to get going in like a bay area february day which you know for people without reference it's cold and wet. It sucks. It's hard to make a fire <laughs> when it's cold and wet. You know, you have less dexterity in your fingers and also the ground is wet. All the sticks are wet. 
it, it's it's kind of even for me, I'm just like, oh, no. Um, so for a bunch of 10 year olds trying to do it for the first time. And there's a point right before frustration that kids coast in for a long time where it's just sheer focus. And when you're that focused on what's in front of you, you're not thinking about what's going on in the world. You're not thinking about what could happen a week from now or a month from now or a year from now. You're just thinking about that one thing. And ultimately, this is what's at the heart of like mindfulness practices, right? Like all the CBT techniques of trying to lower anxiety, all of the therapeutic techniques of being really in the present moment. Um, there's a lot of ways to get there. But one of the gifts that I've definitely been given through this work and the people that I teach and, and run games for, um, I hope get to experience as well, is basically attaining that mindfulness without really knowing it's happening. <laughs> you know, you're so focused on building that shelter so that you'll be able to sleep under it and stay dry. You're so focused on like making that delicious loaf of bread with the wild seeds that you've gathered. You're focused on these things to the point where all that really matters, like breath by breath, is what's in front of you and what's in your hands. And I think that's why the players at like Big Bad Con and Metatopia really were attracted to that tactility of the games, you know, in these windowless, weirdly lit, kind of smelly rooms. They had these plants and this wood coal and like bones and things that they could just hold in their hands. And they weren't thinking about the next game on their schedule. They weren't thinking about, you know, whether their parking meter was running out. They were thinking about how to crush that charcoal fine enough so they could make a good paste for their camo. And, you know, land connection, nature connection, these are really lofty terms and they do mean something. But again, it can be so simple and so small, you know, to start with. And after years of doing this work, my favorite moments in the field still are these little moments of like taking half an hour to sit under a bunch of trees and listening to a jay cycle through five different calls that it's mimicking. Like those are, those are really beautiful gifts to be able to have that. And all I'm thinking about is that jay. All I'm thinking about is the air around me and how it feels and how the ground below me feels and to have those moments of reprieve is so important and it's different than escapism i was know? that's exactly what i was just going to say is that I, I think this is something that i see that i really struggle with when like i know that things feel so heavy and so hard right now and people want to just get out from under it and at the same time that i i don't want folks to be caught up in this tornado <laughs> Of, of just like so much happening and so much fear and so much uncertainty. But at the same time, there's, there, there are better ways of relieving yourself of that particular kind of spun up way of being than just escaping or just comforting or just, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to kick the comfort media out of anybody's hands or anything. But like, there are other ways you can be present to a moment without being caught up in, in fear and anxiety. Yeah, not to sound too much like a Bay Area hippie, but that's <laughs> that's kind of like the the idea of detachment. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. I've I've actually been reading a bunch of like Pema Chodron too, so like I I can't judge you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I'll be honest, I don't actually know a whole lot about Buddhism or, or spiritual practices that that elevate det detachment, but I have noticed myself 
kind of falling into that more kind of just psychologically through through circumstance and you know possibly like personal traumas or whatever but everything is a gift in its yeah. own way <laughs> at some point down the line if you just wait it out long <laughs> enough um and and the thing about like oh man like there was this moment last week uh with this program that i teach uh called micro school which is like a three-day um integration like three days we spend in the woods with this one classroom of kids uh, and we're teaching them how to read and how to write and how to discuss literature and the natural world and sciences at the same time that they're learning um how to tan leather blacksmithing all the all the land skills that we love and we just had this huge celebration of the end of our first semester and these two kids are pulling this cart up this hill right next to a reservoir and one of them the one pushing is shouting at the other and the one pulling is like I need help and the one pushing gets frustrated and he just like steps aside (gasps) and is like fuck it I'm done I know I know that gasp is like and sure enough the kid pulling is like I can't and he loses grip of this part and it goes sailing down the hill like catches on a rock or a root on the embankment all the cooking supplies go everywhere not into the water thank god but pretty much everywhere else they can go they went this is a a very bougie park like all the like well-groomed yoga people on their like daily constitutional and were like glaring at us and i just watched yep from higher on the path which was too far away to have stopped it I had that little jerk like that initial like oh god and then I was like I can't do anything I literally can't all I can do is watch this train wreck unfold and at the end of it what happened was um the kid who stepped aside had just like watched the cart go sailing right by him and then he turned to the first kid's like what the fuck dude And if I had tried to stop that card, I wouldn't have that beautiful story to tell everyone. Right? Yeah, now. there would be no no good good punchline. <laughs> it's oh man, it's like a very glib example, but you know that was definitely a moment of just like quite literally letting go. Yeah, and also like, would you be better equipped to deal with the aftermath of a situation like that if you had been like panicking and freaking out about it? Probably not. Like. No, I don't think it would have no. been a better outcome there necessarily. <laughs> oh man, what a what a beautiful moment that was. But you know, and then also like it, the story doesn't end there. Those two kids had to go get all their shit that had just gone all over the embankment, and they were sniping each other, but eventually like ended up helping each other clean up. Yeah, like it, like detachment is just one of those things that it's not like the bad shit won't happen. Yeah, it's not some sort of like get out of like misfortune free card yeah 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 I think because like ultimately this is the thing that I'm a little bit afraid of in teaching these skills is that people might go away with this idea of like oh well now I'm prepared for anything like there's a lot of speaking of that like dominance over nature like there's a lot of like copy that goes into like prepare for the worst you'll never be touched by tragedy and it's like well no (laughs) but you know hopefully like through the the practice and regular practice of just like focusing on what's literally in your hands in that moment things might happen that are really hard and you ultimately don't have a lot of control over that cart barreling down that (laughs) toward the water Um, or the children swearing at each other like that's out of your hands but the ability to respond to that and to act with equanimity and with with grace like that is a real gift and that is a muscle that everyone can can exercise and develop yeah 
and you have to like exercise it. You have to do it like over and over and over again. Do your reps. Do your sick reps to get those big, <laughs> those big, big shenpa muscles or whatever the opposite is, shenker. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually funny that you say that because I started um, doing CrossFit with a friend of oh, mine. Oh, man. Oh, man. And I was so reluctant to do it because there's that same macho attitude, I think, in a lot of CrossFit. Yeah. You know, I was just like, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to listen to a bunch of bros in the gym talking about their sick reps, right? <laughs> But this this particular friend who's a who's a professional trainer and um, this gym, they emphasize sustainability and longevity. Oh, yeah, it's I know, right? It's so lovely. Like when I go, there are people my age, and then there's also like there's a woman I see every week who's like in her late forties. She's fucking ripped, man. <laughs> I I look at her and I'm like, God damn, yeah. like talk about goals. But in all of the classes people talk about, you know, this is the right form so that you don't injure yourself. This is how you do it at home over a long period of time. If you need to like, please be like humble and realistic about your weight. Like I don't lift a lot. And so my weights are pretty small compared to what everyone starts with. And everyone there is so encouraging. There's no looking down on it. They're like, yeah, like what a great game you just made. I don't even know what that means. Someone said it to me and I was like, thanks buddy. <laughs> but like, that that approach to being able to build up a skill that in a lot of other contexts is like get swole and and very like machismo drenched and there's this one little pocket that I get to go to where it's about looking forward for long term strength like you're not there right now but just focus on what you have in your hands right now and just keep working on it and as long as those two things exist you're going to get where you want to go and it might take longer than you want it to, but that's okay because everyone is different. Everyone's on their own path towards that resilience and that strength. Yeah, there's a lot of that that present-mindedness, that mindfulness that this work teaches that I really hope to be able to give to the LARPing community because, you know, social awkwardness comes with a, a baseline amount of anxiety, I think. Yeah, totally. And I think, I think LARP requires you to kind of be in your body and... Also, incidentally, like I think a lot of people who got into gaming, there's a part of that that is like that is associated with or co-occurs with not necessarily being super comfortable in your body. And I forget that sometimes. I'm like, why doesn't everybody love LARP as much as I love it? Like they do these other kinds of role playing or these other kinds of gaming. Like, why don't they love LARP? And yeah, not everybody wants to be like, here I am in my body. I'm super aware of it right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When you're at a table, you can say like, oh, yeah, I'm like a six foot five ripped barbarian. No problem. You know, like I can say that five foot two, not huge lady. <laughs> and then, you know, when I'm LARPing, to some extent, I, I kind of have to play characters that look like me, you know, like short of having a nameplate on my chest that reads like I am actually in game six foot five 320 all muscle whatever like I, you can't really do that like you have to to some extent be who you are in terms of your physicality and some people including myself sometimes aren't really about that and I think that that can really lend to that self-consciousness that we were talking about but like every single person has ability in their body when it comes to these skills I am not a super athletic person. I'm pretty fit by like modern standards, but like at work, I, you know, have to ask other people to split wood sometimes. I'm pretty short. I have to ask them to get shit down from shelves often. And that kind of sucks sometimes. No, no joke. I get really frustrated with myself 
for stuff I can't control. I can't control my height. And like, to some extent, I can't control my strength in the moment, right? Like I can work towards it for the future. But right now I'm as strong as I am, but I still do a lot. And that's actually something that I forget quite often because I keep looking at someone, you know, one of my teachers when I was a kid, when I would get down on myself or like really frustrated or lash out because I felt like I wasn't good enough, she would tell me like, quit looking at other people's plates. Just focus on what's in front of you. And if you improve from where you were, fan-fucking-tastic. But if you're always looking, you know, like if for me, when I'm like, I want to be able to split this log on my own, no help whatsoever, one stroke, and I'm looking at my coworker who's like six foot three, 225, has like a gigantic axe that he inherited from his grandfather, like whatever, of course I'm going to be unhappy with myself. Because like, that's just not who I am. And that's not even necessarily who I should aspire to be. And I think that that is maybe one of the dangers through teaching skills through LARPing is to some extent, setting yourself up as the facilitator as like this emblem of like, what the player should aspire to be and like, fucking nah, man, like, cult of personality is is a reality in gaming communities. And I want to step away from it a little bit, because that's the root of the, the egoism that prevents connection to the land and the animism and like, the, the humility of acknowledging that you are one part of this huge overarching story that ultimately, in some ways, doesn't care about you. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that is kind of largely indifferent to your presence. Do you, yeah. do you feel like there's like a particular or that that's a, a bigger danger when you're working with children? It can be. I mean, and like I try to be more compassionate and gentle to it with kids because kids are ego machines. Like they, they it's developmentally rooted in who they are, but also at the same time, in some ways, they're so much more fluid and capable of stepping out of that than adults are. In a weird way, I see this with like, I know, I don't, I'm not sure if you've been following a little bit the discussions about like pre-formatted scenes and blockbuster LARPs and how they can make new players feel excluded or like isolated in game. Not just new players. Yep. Not yes. just new players. Yep. yep. Yeah. No, I know absolutely. exactly what you mean. Yes, I have. Yeah. I, I the discourse and I don't always get along like in written <laughs> online format, but I have been keeping yeah. an eye on it a little bit because I think people are putting voice to some important stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a complicated issue and I can definitely see arguments to be made in as much as, you know, the, the points of view are binary on both sides. Right. And I, okay. So like, I'll use myself as an example, not going to talk about anyone else. Right. So when I played in a blockbuster LARP and I learned that there was this option of like, having scenes ahead of time I was like oh awesome I want to get into a bar fight basically <laughs> um and I like submitted the scene and was like you know NPC request boom the game runners were like this sounds amazing and fun so we're gonna make it happen here we're gonna give you these NPCs and I was like fantastic and it was fun and it pulled in a bunch of people a lot of people were like that was just like a really great hearty brawl. I had a good time. And I was like, fantastic. But also, in the middle of it going on, I did notice some bystanders looking kind of upset. Not everyone, you know, enjoys the facsimile of physical violence as like a recreational thing. And I was like, oh, shit, I just had this pretty violent, intense scene. That was a whole lot of fun for like the 30 people participating in the middle of like the like the essentially the town square in terms of visibility I fucked up like I could have upset a lot of people and that was me in some ways kind of forgetting that this is a community event 
And it's not necessarily that I wouldn't, like, if I could go back, I wouldn't have asked for that scene. I probably still would. It was a lot of fun. But I might have, for the game writers, been like, is there a space where we could do this? Is there, like, kind of more away from the public eye? Is there a way that we can forewarn people? Whatever. That kind of consideration for other people fades in the face of, like, you wanting to, like, everyone is always the hero of their own story, more, you know, short of, like, major depression, right? Like, like short of like a, a mood disorder, most people walk through the world thinking of themselves as the protagonist. And when that is literally given to you as a gift by a game writer, it's hard to remember other people sometimes, short of the people who are in that scene with you, in a very literal sense as it's turning out. Yes. Like it's, okay, I'm right. I'm going to put myself in dire danger. But like, <laughs> I think, I'm not saying that there isn't a way that you can do it well, but I think by its very nature, having a scene set up that I have requested that is for me is like is inherently designed to like to to make yourself the hero for that moment and to make yourself the person who this scene is for. Um, or even if it's for you and these two other people or whatever. Yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna articulate myself very well, but I and, and part of part of this is just because like when the whole reason to LARP for me personally is to have an experience where I don't know, I don't know how it's going to turn out and I don't know how I'm going to feel in a moment. And the idea of that, like on the spot creation with whoever happens to be in front of me and like listening to what other people are doing and paying attention and picking up on that and doing this like improvisational thing, like that to me is so cool that that then to, to also assert, like insert on top of that Oh, and also we're going to do this thing that I have really specific expectations for, and it's for me, and it's about me, and like it just—it just seems really um, incongruous, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's like a recipe for wounded feelings, and it doesn't mean that amazing scenes don't happen out of for it. Sure. Often these scenes are really great, yeah. and by their very nature, people are going to need to opt out, and you know that that comes out of of ego, and. Let's be real, kids are always the hero of their own story in a very intense way. Like you, there is a kid who I met um, through camp two years ago who literally would just walk around and kind of out loud under his breath narrate himself as though he were in a novel. Amazing. Um, in character and out of character. It was really kind of incredible to watch because he would have these moments of like kind of social conflict or whatever. And then he would essentially process and narrate his own kind of like internal conflict resolution mechanisms and then come back to the same people like refreshed and ready to go. And I was like, damn, kid, you do you. <laughs> it's pretty great. And like, you don't, you know, like when I train like new summer staff, I talk a lot about like the the balance between making things run well for the group and not squashing any particular kid's dreams. <laughs> like you want to make, you want to give kids those gifts of those moments. If you can tell a kid is really, there is a kid over a spring break uh, camp and it was like a very gentle like solstice spring equinox camp learn about the winds and the trees and she just was dying for a demon possession she came in she was like my character name is something and she's possessed by a demon who's inside and evil and she's just trying to control her but maybe she can't I was like all right all right, right. yeah <laughs> yeah and so like we had the demon possession and it was but she and like she had that moment and like for that moment, all the other kids were like supporting roles to her. But it was that one scene that happened organically for them, largely because me and my amazing, the amazing instructor who was in charge of this group just like bent himself 
in half to like make sure that they got the scene. And then after she had that moment, she was so pumped with like the generosity of having it happen to her that she like created these amazing scenes for all the rest of the kids. And those scenes happened to coincide with the herbalism that we were teaching. And so all the kids were so focused in that moment of gathering the right plants for this healing spell for this other instructor who had like caught the splash of the exorcism and like was, you know, dying of a spiritual plague in one of the wilderness shelters that they built. And for half an hour, all they cared about was gathering enough plantain to make a poultice. Cool. Yeah, it was so cool. They didn't care about their quest. They didn't care about themselves. They like as, as like, this egocentric creation, like walking through the universe, like they just cared about finding this plant, processing it right, making sure it was healthy and helping this other person. And so I think that there are ways to channel the need that children have to like be in the spotlight without robbing them of it. Like you can harness that energy because it's just like pure energy. They will do anything to get themselves in that spotlight. And if you can just move it so that it kind of hitches and creates its own momentum and its own like orbital pull, then it can make these really meaningful stories that don't actually really have to do with that protagonist moment. The story that all those kids told at the end of the day wasn't the demon possession. It was the healing story. It was like trying to find enough of that plant. And one of the kids was like, while I was looking for this plant, I was getting really frustrated. And then I heard this bird and I looked up And there was this little crow and it was talking to me. And like, in reality, I know the crow was sounding an alarm call of like, go away. But like, (laughs) a kid kid was like, it was encouraging me. (laughs) It was telling me not to give up. Yeah, you're right. You are right. Absolutely. That is what that crow was saying to you Mm -hmm. in character, small child. I don't know, like there is a way And again, I can't really articulate it. And once I can, and I can put it into like a 140 character sentence, I know that I will have like harnessed the momentum of the universe, basically. But there is a way that these skills and LARPing and the and the ability to go in there with this protagonist egocentric desire to have the story be all about you, and to leave just with less fear, more knowledge, like more capacity for resilience and mindfulness like these two things intertwine. And I just, you know, I've been doing this just long enough to be able to see that they do and not quite long enough to like deliberate it and control it to like make sure that people have that experience. But to some extent, that's also LARPing, right? Like the thing that I kept asking um, you and Jason Morningstar and like Ross Cam and all these other people I talked to, like when you run a LARP, how can you predict success? And basically, mm. the was, oh. I, I remember, I remember very clearly when I I was hosting that like LARP facilitator roundtable thing. You had this question that was like, and of course, and everyone was like, oh yeah, Gian, she's doing such cool stuff out there. Oh, it's so awesome. And you were like, yeah, so I'm doing this <laughs> stuff, and sometimes like it works really, really well, and I see, you know, I I, I see this awesome thing kind of happen but I don't really know how or how to ensure that it happens. Does anyone have any ideas? (laughs) (laughs) I remember that. And everyone was like, no, no. (laughs) Yeah. No, not really. Uh, But I feel like, (laughs) and I don't know, I feel so torn between, well, you know, what are the ways for us to like study and like ensure that this, you know, or, or somehow increase the likelihood that we can cause these particular outcomes or whatever. But then also like, I do like, magic and not knowing and being open to 
like things happening that we hadn't considered. So I personally feel very torn, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because I have LARPed far and away more as a facilitator than just as a player. Even, even my like explicitly, like I have signed up to be a player experiences. I think the, the one time I've done that, I got cast as a, as like a PC group leader. And so even then I was like thinking about like facilitating the experience of, of, like a, a pretty big group of first time LARPers. And so I felt a lot of pressure of like, oh man, I got to make sure they have like the best experience ever. But I also had a great experience in that game. And sometimes in facilitating, I have these incredible immersive scenes. And I think that I would love one day to have the experience of just being a player and having no responsibilities. But right now that's so outside of my wheelhouse and kind of like what I want to be doing that that's that feels very far away to to have that desire. Right now I'm actually pretty happy facilitating because you know like we were saying before in a larp no one sees the whole story. I'm not actually particularly interested in having that like protagonist egocentric experience. It happens anyway often because like I'm I'm blessed to play with a lot of really gifted players and we create these beautiful scenes. That magic happens that you're talking about. These scenes happen and it's amazing. But right now, in terms of like my own anxieties and fears about just the stuff happening in the world, I do feel an urgency quite often at a baseline level of like, I want to teach as many people as I can, as much as I can. Like, that is how I want to contribute to my community, which, you know, as a result of being kind of a modern urban person, a lot of my friends are really scattered, right? Geographically, a lot of the communities that I participate in are online to a great extent. All the amazing people I met at Metatopia, most of them live on the East Coast of the United States at closest, right? Most of them are really far away. And every single person I met, I'm like, I want to teach you what I know so that you can feel more resilient and then you can teach those skills maybe one day um, in some capacity, even if it's as simple as like how, you know, how to make a good soup. So simple, a basic homesteading skill that gives so many people so much joy and and nourishment. Like even if it's something as like basic as that, I want to be able to give that gift to people. And it's and that urgency, which to some in, you know, has at least one little root in in fear around what's going on, is ultimately what gives me my drive. It gives me my drive to learn more of these skills and to really get them down so that I can be a better teacher. And it's also what gives me the drive to, to facilitate experiences and to run and design LARPs more than just participate in them. Yeah, because ultimately the gift that I can give, you know, most easily and that I'm best equipped to give is, is running the game and teaching the game and teaching the skills. So I have to admit, sometimes when people talk about grievances that come from like just being a PC and like, I didn't get to have the scene that I wanted, or I felt really excluded or this or that, like I really hear them and I sympathize with them. And I have no idea really how to fix it from the ground up because that's just not mm-hmm. what I'm doing. And that's you know? interesting. I am very excited for when you get some experience as just a player, a responsibilityless player. Although I happen to think that players have a lot of responsibility <laughs> towards each other. So I wonder how much, how different, yeah, you would find it. I kind of do too. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I agree. Like when people talk about like, I was a player and the only responsibility oh, I had no. to my, was to no. myself and my own story, I'm like, was it though? 
also isn't your isn't LARPing supposed like, to be isn't interacting with other human beings kind of involve some responsibility to like kind of look out for each other a little bit yeah like when you learn you know when people go to like ranger camp and like you learn how to make a fire aren't you theoretically learning how to make that fire so you can keep everyone you know and love warm not just yourself <laughs> like you know it I I feel like Oh, and again, that just comes out of that fear of missing out on the experience that people want or like missing out on that spotlight that people crave. And like those spotlights happen when you stop caring about yourself in isolation, because like that's a lie. No one actually as isolated as we might feel. No yeah, one really yeah, totally. And like that way. The, I think one of the reasons that I LARP, even though like there are lots of other ways that I could play games and have fun is because it involves, it, it's about that reminder of the fact that you are connected to other people because you can see them and make eye contact with them and they're right there and everything that they do has an effect on you and everything that you do has an effect on them. And that's true all the time anyway, in the sense that like, you know, everything affects everybody, but it's nice to be like, oh, right. Okay, cool. That's, there it is. I can feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, every action has a natural consequence, every single one. And it might be a small one, but you still yeah. live with those consequences one way or the other. Yeah, I, you know, it's been interesting following the discussions of these LARPs that, that generally I didn't really participate in because I can like, they come out of like very specific games and like communities that I just, you know, didn't sign up for or play. But the feelings behind them are so big and so raw. And like, I think, I don't know. And again, this is sort of maybe my own <laughs> callousness I don't know but part of me is like it's also a game right guys like we signed up to play a game together to play make-believe together and it's intense emotional make-believe but isn't isn't it a game like aren't we supposed to be enjoying each other's company <laughs> well and you know like we like to say the people are more important than the game games are really cool and they can even be really important but never ever for like an instant as important as like a person, a human being. Yeah, this is something that comes up in creative fields a lot, right? Like, is the work, does the work justify dick behavior? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like every, at the root of every debate or book or whatever about authorial intent is like basically that question of like, how much of a jerk can I be if I'm like a genius? Yeah. And Which like, is like, it doesn't, yeah. yeah. We can't even. I hate it's that, the worst. honestly. Because it implies that there's it like really a relationship. Is. It's like, well, my work will definitely be better if yeah. I'm mean to other people. Like, can you just admit that you want to be like mean to people? Like, yeah. Stop. Man, I actually, yeah, like the older I get, like not to sound like too much of a, of a curmudgeon, but like honestly, like every year that passes by, the more I appreciate jerks who are upfront about how much of a jerk they are. <laughs> way more than people who like are really gentle and trying but like just keep fucking up and like hurting people <laughs> yeah and like won't admit to themselves that that's what why they're doing what they're doing because there's certain people you can just like block or stop listening to or whatever yeah or or even like in you know the daily compromise we have to make like like take them at face value and be like well this is what I got for you. And this is the the function that we have for each other. And we can in our own little fucked up way still build this little community for this project. Yeah. And I'll just, you know, I'll keep up my certain defense mechanisms and I'll keep up my certain like watchful eye on you or whatever. 
um, because you've been so obvious about the behaviors that you are going to visit upon me. But then there's some other people who are just so insistent that their bad, bad, bad behaviors are actually very good or they come from a good place and therefore they're fine. And it's just like, please don't successfully convince me of that part because then it's much harder to interact with you in a, in a loving, compassionate way, which may include some very high walls. Absolutely. And this comes up so much in like the communities I think that you and I walk in because neither of us are cis het men. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm not white. And these dynamics exist outside of the game. So regardless of whether we're five million years in the future and on a different planet, those dynamics still exist in the game too. And like there is so much like well meaning guilt that gets brought into the games and the narratives and the stories and the characters. And what that means is if someone fucks up, like I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at keeping my cool in the game and like just kind of like compartmentalizing everything. But if I want to bring something up with someone after, I'm always bracing myself for the, for the tears. Yes. <laughs> like oh the, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> like the, but I could never be that person like defensiveness, you know, like it still cracks me up that when I look back on like my, my personal interactions, some of the worst arguments that I've gotten into like with men have been with men who like really adhere to values of like intersectional feminism. And then when I'm like, this behavior is really gross or whatever, they're like, no, but, but, and it's the fact that I'm, that I'm in any way denting their image of like a good feminist. That's what angers them. Not like the behavior but like the idea of their self-image being tainted somehow. Yeah, because it's, it's, so it's, it's like, <laughs> it's like, I don't know about trying to have conversations with people about behavior, not your entire self-concept and like everything that you are in your soul. Like, yeah, okay, cool. All of those, all of those other things that you're telling me about who that you are deciding that you are, or who you strive to be, or what's important to you, like not here to challenge that in what's in like, I don't, I literally don't care, Ashley, at all. I, I, I observed this action and I'm super excited to talk about that and maybe some of the effects of said action. Very invested in talking about this. And I, there are so many things that would be so much easier, you know, if, if, if it was possible. I'm making like really vivid and super helpful hand gestures right now that I'm just realizing are <laughs> not helpful to the listener at all. But, but like, if we could just talk about that, that second thing, the latter, like we focused on the action and then, because I just don't really super care about all of the other things, like what's in your Twitter bio or whatever about who you are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've, and, and I, and I get it because obviously when someone says you have done this, of course you want to go to that place where you're like, well, I couldn't have, I'm not someone who would do that. I'm not like that. I'm not a person whose actions include doing that. But like, it's and just like not internally, helpful. I know, yeah, you know, like I can have like as many conversations about power dynamics or whatever, and I can, you know, I can tell that internally, whoever I'm talking to is like, oh well, you know, this person is special, this in interaction and this relationship, it's okay, it's an exception to the regular rules of power dynamics. And so when you tell them like, actually, it's not, you're really wounding. Them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there's real pain in there. And like, it's, you know, speaking of that detachment, it's like, well, I can see that you are upset. And also, I don't and care. Also, yeah. <laughs> I think it's still, no. yeah. Keep moving. Yeah. In, in teaching, we talk a lot about if you have to, you know, because in teaching kids, right? If you have to talk, have a parent conversation about a kid 
oh man, what's like a fictional example that is probably at some point historically true? A kid like taking a, a flaming stick and trying to hit another kid with the end. You don't say like to the parent, mm-hmm. your kid was an asshole. Yeah. Like, oh man, can we just talk about how much of a dick you have to be to try to set another kid on fire? <laughs> what you say is like, little Jimmy, you know, didn't eat all of his lunch today. And shortly after lunch, <laughs> had a heated conversation with little Timmy. And when that conversation reached this point, little Jimmy reached for the biggest stick that was on fire and swung it at little Timmy. And here we have rules about yeah. you know, like you have to be so specific. Um, even if it's very clear to everyone, like you do kind of like there is a certain point at which that is just unacceptable at a baseline. That's the compromise, right? Do you want do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? Yeah. And and sometimes there is that choice. And like at a certain point, like what does it matter? Like what does it matter whether you know, you can make the judgment that like this person is awful and Like sometimes maybe that's like a useful shorthand. I don't know. But in many cases, it is much more helpful to say, I have observed this behavior, especially when you get to say that. And then there's like 35 other behaviors. And it's like observing all of these behaviors in tandem or, you know, in sequence over a very long (laughs) period of time. Uh, we, you know, I think that this decision is best or this change or, um, or this is what we are requesting of you in order to move forward. If this isn't hit, then we're going to have to revisit your place here or, you know, maybe move you to a different, whatever, like, and what your options are. It's like, exactly. Like things have to be laid out in concrete ways, which essentially is what like game mechanics and a LARP are too. And safety mechanics and like these bigger blockbuster LARPs as well. At no point does someone say like, you're an asshole if you make a racist joke in character, even if that's what your character would do. It says like, you know, in this game, we do not tolerate these sorts of behaviors. And so if they are done, we will ask you to leave. Like it has to be pretty set in stone and like set again as a natural consequence of action rather than like a value judgment of someone's character. Yeah, Because again, it's just more specific too. like, if you are a jerk, like, don't be a jerk or else we will make you because then you can argue about whether or not someone is a jerk. And that is like an infinite argument yeah. that is boring. <laughs> to what degree? Yeah, it's jerk, like, hmm, how mean? high does my jerk meter have to be? Like, no, if we observe these behaviors, then these consequences will occur. Like, it's it, this isn't even a mat. Like, yes, this speaks to like a particular sense of justice, I guess. But also, like, it's just more sensible. Also, it's just better, better set of choices. Like, I mean, it's. It really is. Yeah. And it's funny because like I as a, you know, person like justice is and and the sense of justice or injustice is like very much at the heart of who I am. And also I spend most of my day teaching skills that do not care about justice. They just care about consequences. Right. Like it doesn't matter how great a person you are. If you don't gather the right materials for your shelter, you're going to get wet when it rains at night. Like just really, really simple cause and effect things Um, or not so simple, but eventually you can kind of like root it out to like what happened and why it went wrong. And that's why I'm kind of like fascinated by like these discourses (laughs) that we're seeing in the LARP community (laughs) right now. No, I know so many. (laughs) Uh, But like, because people aren't necessarily seeing these as like cause and effect, like behavior consequence sequences. They're seeing this as like, 
these more amorphous stories with with a different narrative. It's not like, oh, I requested the scene that by its nature was kind of exclusive. And then when other players wanted to get in on it, I said no. And now they're mad at me. It's like, you know, this is part of my character art. And this had to happen for my character. And can't these people understand that like, this is who my character is, you know, they're getting away from from like what was done and, and more into like their hearts about like, what it meant to them, which is still important. And from a facilitator standpoint, doesn't yeah. matter. And and it's also just like those things can be kind of fascinating, but also from like a game design perspective, yeah, from the facilitator standpoint, it's like, okay, cool. I more need to know what is the outcome of an allowance, right? Like if I let you do this, what are the range of things that might happen? If I incentivize this, what are the range of like actions that people might take? Like that's that's game design. So I don't know. And I wonder like because a lot of this discussion is like very much like feedback. People are talking about their experience and what happened to them and what they liked and didn't like and how they felt about it. And so I think there's also like a certain responsibility to, I don't know, maybe try to translate or try to filter. Like when people are saying this, what are they telling me? What are they asking yeah. for? Yeah. There's like, there's like this thing that I wish people could could go into LARPs. And I know that people spend a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of resources. And so everything obviously feels really high stakes. But and, and I'm I'm specifically talking about blockbuster games, especially where like plane tickets are often involved. And like, I wish though, you have, you know, these games last anywhere from three to five days. That's a long time. And I wish, like, if there's one thing I could impart that I feel like maybe might have a positive impact on like this specific conflict that's going on, it's to go into these games pursuing not just your spotlight moments, but like, your sitting moment, like your quietude, to go into the game pursuing moments of maybe even solitary quietude. And to, to give an example that that is kind of like like and it's emotional correlated. There was um during one of my survival trips, I had to kayak across this lake, and it was one of our work kayaks that basically are are designed to simulate just like hide on a wooden frame, really tippy. And I'm not a skilled kayaker, so I thought I was going to die, even though it's a lake and there was a wind took me like an hour. I almost gave up and just like went back to the campsite. But like, I finally fucking made it. And I, you know, hiked up to my campsite, which was right by this like, beautiful creek. And I just collapsed. And for what felt like hours, you know, like I bathed myself in the creek, I was lying in the sun, and the like sun was on my skin and everything was like warm, but also kind of moving at the same time, because there was this breeze. And I lay there for hours after the struggle, what felt like it. And I, you know, saw at one point, I just kind of turned my head and I realized that there was a deer on the other bank, not not even eight feet away from me, just grazing and like looking at me and not snagging on me. Like its eyes didn't snag on me any more than they snagged on like the tree behind me or the grass around me. And like the sense of just being a part of what was around me like so wholly without being like myself in that protagonist way was one of the most beautiful and strange and valuable things that has ever happened to me. And you can get that in a LARP. Yes, you can. In a blockbuster LARP especially. Yes. And it's so important to have those moments because they reset you. After kayaking back, even hiking up, I was like, fuck this. I hate this. I don't (laughs) want to be here. 
I like, why did I agree to do this? Like, why? and then, and then it turned immediately into like, why am I so bad at this? No one else I know would have had trouble across that lake. I later learned that one of my coworkers, who's like maybe one of the most athletic people on our staff, also thought he was going to die kayaking across that lake. But I had no idea. I was just like, I suck. This is the worst. I'm the worst. And then like having the time and space to just reset was so important. And even now, sometimes in moments of anxiety, I actually go back that like afternoon or however long it was, it could have been 20 minutes. I don't actually know. The passage of time is weird when you don't have a watch or a clock. Um, just that that time by the creek with the grass and the deer um, and the wind, like I go back to that as an anchor in times of anxiety now. And like, I feel like these long form games can give people that gift. And through the the games that I designed by virtue of being out in the land that people will have more access to, to having those moments for themselves. But you have to want it on some level. You have to go in there knowing that it can happen. If you go into a four-day game being like, I'm going to pack my schedule and do every single thing, you're going to be miserable. <laughs> I don't know how to be diplomatic. Like You're going to be miserable. I, th- I think it's a matter of like, I think you deny yourself a lot when you, whether it's a convention or like a long LARP, I think you deny yourself so much capacity for openness and acceptance and the unexpected and the feeling of connection if you're really, really focused on, okay, I have to have these 10 things happen. They've got to happen. Like they might, and who knows, you might have a great time. All those 10 things happen and you love them, but I think it's significantly more likely that some of them won't happen or some of them will be disappointing or some of them will get interrupted or whatever. And I, so it's, it's not even about how it's not a, it's not about what scenes happen. Like I, I think giving yourself some opportunity to say, I don't know what's going to happen during this part and I'm going to be open to what's going to happen. I'm going to accept whatever happens. Like I, I think that can give you a different kind of joy and I, what I love about your story about grass and trees and a deer in the creek is that's not the experience of being a hero and protagonist. The kayak part definitely is, you know, and going through this journey, whatever. Like <laughs> that's that's the joy of feeling connected to other people. And I think through this conversation, I'm finally figuring out why I have a hard time getting to why having a, this big spotlight scene would be really awesome and something that I would like work really hard to have because to me, the joy of feeling connected to other people is so powerful and so cool and probably more powerful and more cool than like feeling like, you know, the hero. Yeah. Like, you know, people in the scheme of things don't live very long. (laughs) And if you go through, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) sorry, that's a weird way to start. But like, if you go into these games through your life, only seeking out those spotlight moments as a way of feeling like, well, now what I've done will have mattered. To me, to the people around me, you end up missing out on so much. And the stories that get shared by other people around you, what I've noticed at these LARP conventions and in these games is there are stories that are shared by many people. It's not usually like the highlight reel of one person that the whole like campfire ends up telling it's the stuff where other people can pop in and be like oh and then I did this and then I saw you there doing this those moments don't happen if people go in looking out for number one right yeah and and frankly I think like the blockbuster model I mean I can only speak so much about it right I've been to like one blockbuster game but 
I, I think there's a certain structure of like, here's an experience that we are selling to you. We are providing it to you and you get to come and have it and then go away and take it, you know, some piece of it back home with you. That is a kind of promise about like the kind of experience you're going to have, which is like, you will have a great time rather than like, Hey, come here and share what you have and other people will share what they have. And because everyone is doing that and everyone is different and unique and excited and creative, we will make this really amazing, cool thing. Yeah. It's like, it's interesting to me that but not surprising that, of course, that's a harder sell than like, you will be the hero. Yeah. Well, you will also just like, you will get a product. This LARP is a product and I can sell it to you and I can guarantee that you will have a good time. Like, yeah, which is so odd to say about something that is a fleeting yeah, experience. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but at the same time, think of like the various like experience economies, right, of whether it's escape rooms and immersive theater and all of these things that that people are claiming are like really LARP adjacent that I actually I mean, maybe there are probably some like immersive theater things I would like, but like a lot of that doesn't feel like LARPy to me at all. Or it doesn't, it, I'm not saying it isn't LARPy, but it's not the kind of LARPy that I like because it's just like, I don't want to go and just like get something. I want to go and like make something, you know? Like I'm a pack rat. I love souvenirs, like tangible things. But like ultimately the thing that I'm I'm marketing as well, like, you know, the skill, the land skills and the games all of these are are also experience products, like you say, experience outcomes. And what I've noticed that we market with with land skills, or that like when I when I'm like you know in a lift and like talking to the driver, and the driver's like, oh, what do you do? And like ten minutes later, he's like, can I have your business card? What gets him there isn't like, and then you'll get this cool knife that you get to keep. It's like you're gonna learn how to carve. You know, you're gonna learn, and like the way that we teach you to carve, there is literally no way you can cut yourself if you follow all of the safety rules. And it is also one of the strongest ways to like carve powerfully and to like get what you want out of that skill. I'm not selling the the stick that he's going to whittle to a point the first hundred <laughs> times to learn how to do this. I'm selling like the knowledge that he will have forever. That's so powerful. That's so big and raw. And LARPing can learn how to harness like selling that. It can like our communities can these game writers can. But like, I don't really see that right now, to be honest. And that's not a dig. It's just like, when I look at marketing copy, it really is like, have this amazing experience with these photos and this thing. And like, that's great. I love that shit. And there is like, a degree to which like people do say like, the experience and the story that you take away, that's the gift. But again, because humans are, are at their core egocentric, and you have to unlearn that, when people say like, by playing this LARP, the gift, the outcome, the thing that you will walk away with is, is, this, is this incredible story and this incredible experience. I think that a lot of people go into it thinking, oh, that means that I will get to be the hero. That is the, the tangible that I will walk away with is I will walk away from this game being like, I was the hero. And that's a trap. Yeah, it sucks. And also like, and we can even, you know, we could talk about the nature of hero narratives to begin with and how that kind of messes people up. And like trying to be a hero in real life is actually like a huge bummer and I think hurts communities. And, yeah, you know, it does like, yeah, I, I would like the personality to, is a real thing. And like it, it ultimately does more harm than good, I think. 
And it's something that I'm really keenly aware of because like kids, you know, when you teach kids, they really latch onto you. And to some extent, like you selling your persona is part of how you build rapport with kids. But I really like there is a certain idol worship of adults that I think leads to like unquestioning obedience of authority, and like other things that make me feel weird inside. And, you know, I try to get away from that as much as I can by emphasizing again, like the land and the skills and like these stories that are told outside of us, but with us with like contained within them. It's very, it's very intangible. It's like still hard. I wish I had like catchier way to put it but you know like nature isn't catchy (laughs) yeah it's not that simple yeah 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 it's just it just is and like hopefully one of the gifts I'll be able to to give people is is that ability to just be that way I hope so I guess it's hard to know it's hard to measure it really is and like that's one of the reasons why I love that story about Maya because that really was a tangible thing like she came up and started her yeah. story with the words I hate hiking and you're like okay and then ended with how do I learn more about hiking and you're like okay learning outcome check, check yeah 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 like in many ways one of the most satisfying facilitator like stories that I have and like you know now through being friends with Maya I know that she loves the outdoors now yeah. and it's like super different I think Probably one day you will have her on your show as well, and she can confirm or deny. Yeah, I will definitely that, do some investigative you know. journalism on that one. Oh, yes, on. absolutely. Yeah. I'm so glad. <laughs> so, Gian, uh, we have talked for a long time about some very many things, and it's been so wonderful. If my listeners want to keep up with you and see what you're doing, what is the best way for them to do that? I'm so glad you asked. There are some personal like social media accounts that people can follow. I'm on Twitter as Gian Shim, which will be spelled correctly in the show notes. Um, so don't worry about it. Uh, and I also have like an illustration portfolio that isn't super relevant, except it has a link to my blog there. And that's gianshim.com. There's also an Instagram account that I'll link you to. And the work that I've referenced uh, doing through trackers, the website for that is trackersbay.com. And through trackers, we do a lot of LARP summer camps for kids aged six through 16. And those range from, you know, very land connected kind of animistic, like school of magic style LARPing to and like, not joking, officially licensed dark horse comics, like IP, all of that good stuff, Hellboy LARP camps. And because like, no joke, these are some of like the, this is like the highlight of my summer when I was writing the BP, it's called BPRD because it, the idea is it's the West Coast branch of the same organization that Hellboy works for. And this summer, when I was writing the story, I went to my boss and I was like, hey, so like, I know through most of the summer, we tried to avoid kids like crying and like peeing themselves as much as possible. Can I just lift that for this week and make that like an explicit goal? And she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's Hellboy. It's fine. <laughs> so, like... That's the kids' summer camp. There's also one overnight one in Portland for slightly older kids that I've heard is like just fucking wild. So if you have listeners in Portland, Trackers actually originated there and there's incredible summer camps there. You know, it's Oregon, so we actually own land in Portland. uh, And that makes it pretty cool as well um, for the overnight experience. And eventually, fairly soon, because we just revisited the contract, we now have adult program licensing and there will be in the future some hellboy larps for adults because in all the years of running hellboy camp many many times over people have been like how come this doesn't exist for adults 
why can't I, a 40-year-old man, go to Hellboy camp? This is like my dream. So we heard you and we delivered (laughs) and we are just figuring out the logistics. It might be several months out, but eventually through trackers, we're going to run official Hellboy LARPing. So exciting. Which is terrifying, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) That is my dream for you. That's wonderful. I just realized that I do want you to just very quickly tell our listeners the story of how you acquired the Hellboy license, because I, I think it's hilarious. Oh, man. Yeah. So the way the story was passed down to me by my predecessor is that Mike Magnola who I think lives in Portland, um, sent his daughter to summer camp at Trackers. And she loved it. And she was telling him, you know, the way that kids tell their parents every day, like, this thing happened, and then my character did this, because she went to the artisan's camp, the LARPing camp. And Mike Magnola, you know, on the last day of camp was like, oh, man, this is so great. Like, I wish I could do something for you guys, because you've done so much for my daughter. She really loved the camp. And as a joke whoever he was talking to, the instructor or staffer was like, well, you know, it would be pretty great to have the intellectual property licensing to run Hellboy Camp. And he was like, ha ha ha. And three days later, about uh, this huge stack of papers landed on the desk of the company founder of like pre-signed, like, yes, you may run this programming for children. Yes, you may officially license it as Hellboy. Like, yes, Dark Horse Comics approves. And now we run Hellboy Camp. That's so Because our summer camp is so cool. Basically. This is how things happen. Yeah, it's like it truly real. is the magic of LARP. Like, how does it work? Well, we really don't know. <laughs> Case study right there. Okay, yeah. awesome. We should wrap up. It was so great having you on. This is totally oh been it. I miss you. I miss <laughs> you too. I'm excited for us to hang out some more. For sure. If you're ever in the Bay Area, love you. Huge thanks to Gian for joining me, and as always, thank you for listening. Remember that if you have thoughts on today's episode, you can always email me, that's backstorypodcast at gmail.com, or follow me on Twitter at Backstorycast. Oh, and by the way, if you really liked it, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, or tweeting about it, or posting somewhere about it, or even just telling a friend. Backstory is part of the One Shot Podcast Network. You can go to oneshotpodcast.com to find more great shows, like Warda. Warda is an original fantasy actual play podcast created by Ali Grauer and Drew Mircheski. It's one part Game of Thrones, two parts Downton Abbey, served on the rocks with a twist of Agatha Christie. Discover magic, mystery, and more than a little sociopolitical commentary along the way. The city holds thousands of stories. What will yours be? Music for Backstory is provided by Uchiko. The track is called Thinking of You. You can find more on SoundCloud, Spotify, Bandcamp, YouTube, and more. Just search U-J-I-C-O. Talk to you later, friends. <laughs>